music to whose ears, music and healing. This is the third one in the series, music to whose ears, and it's called music and healing. It was suggested to us by Marina Korsakova Krein, who is a professional pianist and scholar in music, perception, and cognition. Uh, as I call your name, please indicate who you are. <laughs> Uh, Evelina Fedorenko is assistant professor and director of the X Lab at Harvard Medical School, Mass General Hospital. Andrea Norton is senior research associate, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Andrew Rossetti, clinical music psychotherapist, research, Mount Sinai, Beth Israel Medical Center. John Schaefer, host and producer, New Sounds on WMYC, and Conchetta Tomeno, executive director and co-founder, Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. Thank you. Who's getting us started? <laughs> Marina? <laughs> this case, you know. <laughs> Normally, I have the same problem. Yeah. One of you start. Yeah. Um, I think we should start um, the roundtable with questions to practitioners, to people who practice music therapy. And we have two practitioners, uh, actually three practitioners. Andrea Norton, she does amazing studies with people who suffer aphasia due to stroke. She practices music melodic therapy and helps people to restore their speech. And Conchetta Tamena, she works with uh, elderly people. And she's, a, she's an amazing researcher and thinker, I have tremendous respect to her writings and her conversations. Um, and Mr. Rossetti, he works at the Mount Sinai Hospital with uh, various patients, including premiers. So he has important experience to share with us. So you want to start with the healing part? Yes. Okay. In my work, um, I've been in the field of music therapy as a professional music therapist since the late 70s and was introduced to the power of music to affect people, especially in recovery of function or at least maintenance of function for people with neurologic diseases. And it was obvious back then that there was something about music, the way music could arouse and stimulate function and people who seem to have lost function in such a way that I, I really felt needed to be studied. And we know, um, most people know how much music can help them individually. And what we've been interested in as, as therapists is how can music be used specifically to really help people not only maintain function, but to bring it back if they've lost it. So people who've had strokes and can't speak, or people who have Parkinson's disease and can't walk. But they can do these things specifically with music because of the way the patterns of sound arouse and stimulate specific areas in the brain into function, where that person can't draw upon that by themselves. So that's really been the impetus for my work for the past almost 40 years. Thank you. 
And Connie, you were, I mean, when you started, it was, there really wasn't much Not in the, yeah, um, the field of music therapy was established in the United States in the 1950s um, as a profession, as an academic training program. Um, I started actually initially working with seniors in a nursing home with end-stage dementia. But my background before that was as a pre-med biology student. So although I was trained at NYU, and most of my training was in psychotherapy and the psychotherapeutic aspects of music therapy, when I saw people who supposedly weren't able to recognize anything in the world around them, people with end-stage dementia, um, respond to a familiar song, I had to ask the question, how does that happen? How does somebody who has no cognition or cognition that can't be measured by any other means recognize sound in the environment as music? How does their brain recognize that melody as an old familiar song? So that was 1978. And it was in 1980 that I happened to come to Beth Abraham where Oliver Sacks was working. And so for the past, you know, up until his passing, we work together trying to ask those questions. Yeah. What is it about music that reaches us and helps us maintain function as much as possible? But it's probably, I know we've talked about this before, yeah. and, and for, for Andrew and, and Andrea as well, it's, it, it has to be targeted to the individual. You can't just say music right. and, and, you know, I think Bach is great music, right. but if I play it for you and you have no you know, reason to respond to it, you won't respond right. to it, right? Well, there's some universals in the sense that um, auditory timing be- can be purely stimulated, motor response to rhythm can be purely um, produced by an auditory signal of a certain beat. Most of us perceive rhythm the same way, no matter which country we're from or how we've developed. Some have developed more sensitivity to rhythm and complex beats, depending on their culture. But when it comes to actual music, melody, and song, there's really no universal because how we all experience that music in our lifetime then changes our emotional response and our associations to that. So from the point of birth, or even before birth, right, because there's musical, some kind of rhythmic perception in utero, um, we start developing these very strong associations to music from the first time, first breath we take. And those then get encoded in neurologic responses that we can either call upon or whatever, but that's what really makes music unique to us in our own special way based on our life experience and associations. Can I follow up on this? I know very little about music therapy. I'm more on the basic um, science side. So um, given this point about huge variability across people and what kind of things might drive them or you know get them aroused or calmed so how does it work in practice so so do you is there sometimes so is is it a kind of therapy where a patient plays a more active role so that they share information with you guys or you know is there like some period where you're trying to find out what it is that the patient might be most responsive to like how would a you know if i come to you with a particular problem like how would the whole process of therapy work okay so uh, every patient that i that i work with that uh uh, mostly in oncology, excuse me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the first thing we do is uh, an assessment. Mm-hmm. And an assessment, of course, has to do with medical aspects, uh, also has to do with psychosocial aspects, mm-hmm. cultural aspects. Uh, we screen for trauma, um, things like what might be a, a uh, person's um, song of kin, mm-hmm. uh, significant music. Uh, what It seems that 
what the research is pointing towards is that what might be most effective, uh, and I really don't think this is rocket science, uh, is that it needs to be music that people like. Mm -hmm. So the I well effective in reaching clinical goals. It, de it depends on uh, what population you're working with in, in music therapy. For myself, that means working mostly with cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And it also depends on what the goal, Andrew's right, and mm -hmm. what the goals are. For people who are working psychotherapeutically, there could be a very active interaction with the client because you want to draw out some of their hidden um, inhibitions, their mm -hmm. hidden responses, and so how they play music may reveal something about what they're going through. I work a lot with people with neurologic impairment, and in that case, it's actually knowing some of the structures of music and how music affects the brain, and that can be very prescriptive at mm -hmm. times, mm -hmm. whereas a certain rhythm can drive um, motor function in somebody with Parkinson's disease. It ha doesn't matter whether they like, like the rhythm it. or not, it's gonna um, cause this kind of motor entrainment. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with somebody who has a speech problem uh, or aphasia, being able to use the melodic contour of sound and the rhythmic structure of, of speech and music helps um, them therapeutically if that's used in a very directed way. So the field of music therapy is quite broad, depending mm -hmm. on the background and the training, just like medicine. Yeah. You know, the field of, of medicine is as broad as sure. the practitioner and their training. Yeah. And so the field of music therapy is that broad as well. So is Whether, there like, yeah, oh, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to say, if, if, is there like a clear ontology of the kinds of things that they do? Is there like a clear set of programs, or is it just really heterogeneous across um, the... No, there's a, there's a standard of practice by mm -hmm. the American Music Therapy Association that talks about the different populations mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the range of training within those populations. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's working psychotherapeutically, it may be analytical music therapy, it may be another type of music therapy. If somebody's working with people with neurologic diseases, it may be neurologic music therapy, which is more prescriptive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there's more um, humanistic approaches too that's um, dynamic. Mm -hmm. And some therapy is very passive. It could be as simple as you know, programming like music to help somebody re relax, but it's done with the music therapist mm -hmm. analysis and carryover of their, mm -hmm. their well, work. That's a good point, so I'm, I'm gonna pick that up there. Yeah. Um, the thing about what sometimes is called receptive music therapy or passive listening, things like that, that's sort of the, the uh, lowest common denominator. Um, but even so, there, there are uh, situations where we cannot use live music which is what uh, I think most people would agree yeah. is, seems to be most effective. Um, so using pre-recorded music is, is an option. Uh, for instance, in uh, radiation oncology, I, there isn't a way for me to uh, provide live uh, music therapy during, during treatment. But I can uh, prescribe music for patients to listen to. Mm -hmm. So um, the first thing would be an assessment of what the patient's needs are. So let's say you have someone who's very anxious. Well, first they would identify the type of music that they like to listen to, um, and then we would take music and uh, music that they've identified and analyze it, um, and then place it in a sequence to obtain a uh, sedation effect. What other effects are you aiming for besides sedation? In other words, what other, when you talk about therapy, what are the the symptoms, if you will, that you're tackling? Uh, that's a huge question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, so a good example, and um, 
Andrew, you could speak to it too, uh, somebody who has a stroke, for example, and loses their speech, there's still the potential of that person recovering some form of communication by stimulating other networks in the brain that are still intact, that still um, help with word retrieval and, and this uh, prosody of speech, but they're dominant in music-centered areas. So music is processed throughout the brain. It's not just a right-left situation like was thought of in the past. Somebody who loses the ability to find words may have damage in a specific area in the left part of the brain, but they still have the ability to use those words as if it's in a certain structure, and that structure tends to be musical in nature because that part of the brain is still intact. And so people like Andrea, who, who do melodic intonation therapy treatments, are using those structures in the, in the musical way to help recover speech. Right, so what we do is quite different from music therapy in that um, we're using music as an intervention in a clinical trial, so everybody gets exactly the same intervention. And the people that we work with have had um, severe strokes. Uh, many of them have lost as much as the entire left hemisphere of their brain. And what's fascinating, what fascinated me, um, because I don't have a medical background or a, or a music therapy background, I'm a choral musician and conductor and singer um, myself, but came to this through music education research and seeing um, how music affected children's learning and then made this leap to clinical research with music. And the people that have these strokes that are so massive, um, if you ask them to speak the words of happy birthday, they can't do it. They can't get anything out at all. And if you ask them to sing the song, you wouldn't know they'd had a stroke. It's a preserved function in their brain, that melody. So melodic intonation therapy actually capitalizes on that preserved brain tissue. And so what we're looking at um, in a neuroimaging study and with behavioral testing before, during, and after therapy is how does music change the brain over the course of treatment? So the people that we work with are people who are chronic patients. Um, they've had a stroke at least a year ago. They've had lots of regular speech therapy, um, but not music therapy. And we find that they make huge improvements over the course of treatment. Now, the treatment that we're able to give in this research setting is much more intensive than anybody's insurance will pay for. So it's really a luxury on our end um, that we get to see this progression of no speech at all to whatever people end up with in the end. And um, not surprisingly, what people put into it is often what they get out of it. Um, and those who practice more and use it more do better over time. But there are all sorts of other factors that we see anecdotally, things like family support and positive attitude that adds to this music effect. So I think there are more studies to be done afterward that will tease this out, um, but it's fascinating to watch people be able to take this simple treatment, which is no more than singing uh, what you would speak. It's not about singing a song or listening to a song or what's your favorite music. It's about what do you want to say. Um, so if I want to say, hello, nice.
nice to meet you. I'm so happy to be here today. You use the same um, basic prosody that speech would have. Any syllable that would be accented in speech gets the higher note. Anything that's not accented gets the lower note. So anybody can pick it up. And it's a treatment that you can, over time, learn to do yourself. So I can say more about so that, but that's just one aspect take it of the way one music. small piece. Um, sure. Sometimes those of us you know, who work with patients who have chronic pain, there's some good scientific research that shows how there's a top-down gating of the perception of pain if somebody's listening to music. There's also um, Isabel Peretz at, at, uh, at Montreal is doing some research on that. So we can gate the perception of pain um, if somebody's listening to pleasurable music. Um, we can help with um, for early children, you know, ch in childhood development, um, for children to develop language. Children with autism, you're doing some work with that too in the lab. Uh, children who are pre-linguistic can learn the structures of communication through music, even though they can't conceptualize what words are yet. So an idea of, of a happy sound or a sad sound, they can start acquiring the building blocks of emotional language, even though their brain, brain can put together what words are. So all that comes through music. I mean, it's one of the reasons why music is such a, and we always talk about it as a powerful tool. I don't mean that you know, casually, but it really is because it touches so much of it, and, and a lot of it is neurologically based, how our brains perceive sound and how we organize that perception. You know, it's, there's, there's this old saying, of music is the universal language, which to me has always seemed like, well, speech is a universal language as well. It doesn't mean that just because I can speak, I can understand somebody from Mongolia. Right. You know, there are different languages within speech, and it seems like that it's the same thing with music. But um, do you know Tom Fritz at the, the Max Planck Institute yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and his studies with the Mafa people, where right. he went right. into the highlands yep. of Cameroon? Um, to a, a group of people who had really no contact with Western culture, Western music, and just showed them three pictures, a happy face, a sad face, and a scared face, and then played them music, music. Yeah. and found that the Mafa people who had never heard this music, had never heard anything except their own regional folkloric music, were consistently able to identify the happy pieces as happy, the sad pieces as sad, the scary pieces as scary by pointing at the appropriate face in front of them. He then took their music back to Germany and did the same test there. And Germans who had never heard this music were able to consistently point to the happy face because it turned out all Mafa music is happy. <laughs> it's just the way it worked. So, I mean... It seems like there's, there's some kind of universality to music. I'm not ready to say it's a universal yeah. language, but there are, there are some kind of elements some of it that seem to be... Well, um, the idea that the rhythm of music, um, our perception, is related to how we move. So a song that would sound depressing or melancholic would be very slow in tempo. Because when we're sad, we move slowly. You know, if, we're, if it's very laborious in the way we move. If we're very happy, if you would play something very upbeat and fast rhythmically, 
the person might say that music is very happy. Yeah. And so a lot of our music is related to how we as humans move and relate to the world. So that could be universal. But, but because uh, some of us humans are also musicians and creative oh, types and like to subvert expectations, that's a, yeah. you have... You have things like Calypso, yes. which when Calypso formed is this bouncy, happy music, and the, the, the message words. it was delivering was yeah. throw, overthrow the white man, get him off our island, you yeah. know, resur- uh, you know resurrection, oh, yeah. uh, revolution, insurrection. You know, that was the message of, that was being delivered in this very kind of jaunty, carefree music. So, so that's how they got away with it. There are different <laughs> things going on here, I think. Um, what, what we were talking about before, um, about associations, associative processes with music. All music is, creates associations. We could argue that music is metaphoric in nature. Um, so I, I think part of what we're looking at is, and why I think that music is likely more culturally dependent than not, is because we, we have our own set of cultural metaphors for things that, that might differ. Um, so associative processes uh, and metaphoric processes remind me of your last, your last statement because I lost my, th- my thread of thought here. About the reggae, I mean about the calypso. Music. Oh yeah, yeah, just the, 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 the tension between the message and the kind of the music that was delivering it. Right. So the, so the, the, the yeah, multiple thank you. layers thanks, of... Thanks for doing yeah, that, John. Yeah. So uh, the other thing that I, that I think comes up is how when we listen to music, and we're looking at, at the emotional content of music, there, there are two different processes going on. One is how we perceive the music to be, and the other is our, our response to it. So I can listen to a very sad piece of music and feel strangely uplifted. Right. right? So perceived versus how we identify it. Sure. I think it's related to, to the fact that music is dealing with aesthetic emotion. There are just four basic emotions, uh, according to last classification. But aesthetic emotion, that's such a complex thing. And it just happens that music is able to talk, to deliver information that no other means of communication are able to deliver with the same certainty and precision. And it's not my thought. It's the thought by uh, Susan Langer. Mm-hmm. wonderful American philosopher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she compared linguistic language with music. And she wrote that um, music is more precise. Basically, it was your thought. Your thought. And another very important uh, idea about music, that music delivers, gives us the logic of emotion. It's when we follow the flow of music, we recreate intuitively emotion inside us, we live another life when we listen to music. Um, and it's life very abstract. It's very precise and same time very abstract because there is no objects. Uh, there is no such precision as, for example, language has. We can take any language and translate to other languages. There is nothing to translate the music. Yes, you can do it with pictures. But still, music is self-sufficient language. There is no cats, hats, houses. Hmm. It's something that goes directly to our system. But how it goes directly, we still don't understand. Uh, We have some understanding of the very fundamental things in music. And it's fun to learn them, uh, because at least there are some tangibles. But on the top of that, 
why music makes us cry, why we have goosebumps, how music delivers important ideas, philosophical ideas sometimes, we still don't understand it. And, uh, but this is the most exciting thing about music, how it happens. Do you think it's different, uh, whether it's instrumental music or music with words? Because once you do add language to music, now you're, you've, you've really muddied the waters at that point. You know? oh, but it's not just music, it's already words. Mm-hmm. And as my friend told, sometimes better not to understand words for some songs. Melody is so beautiful. <laughs> challenge the claim that music is more precise. Mm-hmm. I would challenge any musician to be able to express something like, my husband thinks it's raining, right? There's a very limited set of messages that we can convey through music, and it's arguable how broad that range is, but certainly it's not the kind of rich communication system that we have through language, which makes our species stand out from many other species in terms of the richness of meanings and the arbitrariness of meanings we can convey. So I think, it's, I think the precision scale is maybe not the right end to put language and music on, but rather um, the kinds of information that they <coughs> convey. I absolutely um, agree, yeah. because uh, with linguistic language, uh, we have uh, cognitive constants, uh, the certainty, this absolute precision of delivering uh, information in the words. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, music has different precision. It delivers to us the most difficult things, who we are, our psychological states, our feelings, that they very difficult to express in words. Says who? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. That's, that's a well, hypothesis, I, I, right? It, it, uh, I mean, it, it, it's... So some people find it quite easy to express their feelings in words. I mean, I think that's, that's, but, that varies hugely across the But people. we've seen many, perhaps too many, examples of people who use words in very precise ways and are still misunderstood. That's oh, that's certainly know? true. So, that's certainly true. And, yeah. and there, are, there are musicians like uh, Meredith Monk, the great American composer and vocalist, who, despite being a singer, almost never uses words because she feels like um, music... Can, can be very precise in getting to emotions that are, you know, if you think of emotions not as little discrete packets of fear and joy and, you know, sorrow or whatever, but as a, as a spectrum, as a continuum, sure. that music can get to those gray areas sure. that, that we feel emotionally that we don't have names for. Like, you know, yeah. the Brazilians talk about saudade. Yeah. We don't really sure. have a good American right. word for that. Uh, nostalgia yeah. doesn't really come close. Yeah, but yeah. Brazilians know it when they feel. We know it when we feel. We just don't have an English word for mm-hmm. it. And music can can kind of emotionally target those kind of areas that... Sure. That but music is certainly not the only thing, right? I mean, so, so, so language is one. Language is the system that we use to exchange thoughts with one another. I mean, that is our primary means um, of communication. But sure, you can express yourself through painting. You can express yeah. yourself through dance, through music. And uh, um, one thing that um, I've been very interested in whenever I've thought about um, all of these um, strands of words that use music therapy is um, one 
what aspects of music are driving, what are the shared mechanisms that, for example, help you, you know, either recover speech or become less depressed or tolerate pain better, mm -hmm. um, and also how specific, and it's, it's a related question, how specific is it to music, right? And so given that, because understanding how specific effects are is kind of key to understanding what the shared mechanisms might be. And some people have tried to kind of take different components of music therapy apart by, for example, controlling um, with conditions like, you know, theater therapy, right, where you also engage with other people, you find some alternative ways of maybe expressing yourself through body language or facial expressions or something like that. So that's trying to, you know, control for one aspect of it. But it sounds like the kinds of music therapy that people use are so, so rich, and there are just so many things that um, go yeah. into that big That's bag. Mm -hmm. And for people who want to just help other people, they may not care about taking it apart. They just want something that will make someone better at you know, whatever their problems are. But it seems like ultimately it would be really helpful to understand what drives these recovery effects so we can then maybe capitalize on the things that work really well or whatever components are most sure. efficient. Well, um, yeah, you brought up so many uh, really interesting points to talk about. Uh, on a mechanistic level, that's still a huge gray area. Uh, what you're saying about uh, the difficulties of research in music therapy, that's just a, a reality. I mean, it's impossible to do a double blind. Yeah. It, with uh, with music therapy, mm -hmm. um, you you brought up a point about uh, sp specific mechanisms for um, uh, clinical practice, mm -hmm. and Connie started talking about pain. Mm -hmm, I think we could mm -hmm. talk a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah. You started mentioning gating and things like that. Yeah. So, um, what uh, Connie was, I think, what she was starting to talk about uh, was uh, uh, Melzack and Katz mm -hmm. gate control neuromatrix theories, right. and so. Um, following that, there, there are areas of the, the pain response. It is a multidimensional uh, subjective response um, that has different domains. Some of those, do those domains are things that we can work with as therapists with the idea, for example, um, there's an emotional uh, content always mm -hmm. to physical pain. I'm not talking about emotional yeah. pain and suffering. So emotion is something that, that, that music... Uh, is, it's what music is made of, yeah. we could argue. So using music to modulate an emotional mm -hmm. response to pain mm -hmm. is something that is very effective mm -hmm. and relatively easy to do. Mm -hmm. There are other domains. There's a cognitive discriminative uh, domain to it as well. We can use music in a process with that as well. Mm -hmm. I don't... Because it's impossible for everybody... Is, somebody's going to know that music is happening. Does everybody know here what double-blind studies are? I mean, I just don't know what people's backgrounds are. Would you explain are. it, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just basically when neither the therapist nor the patient is aware of which treatment group they're in, right? So there's no biases on the side of the patient or on the side of the right. um, So it's impossible not to know. Mm -hmm. Somebody knows that somebody's getting music. Yeah. Right. Right. But it seems like I don't, so I don't know. Again, I'm so sorry, I don't... So if you had the group who had pain over going through the same procedure and didn't get music, and another group who got music. And then you found out which ones had felt less pain. Isn't that double blind? No. No, because they know what they got. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's been studies with um, both groups get headphones, and one might get white noise, and the other one gets music. And then you could do really mm -hmm. a double blind study mm -hmm. in that kind of situation. Oh, so it's, it's still so single. Like the patient knows. The patient knows. Yeah. The patient yeah. knows yeah. But yeah. then that's all that they're yeah. going to hear. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. 
do a double-blind study where mm -hmm. we're doing um, non-invasive brain stimulation in mm -hmm. conjunction with melodic intonation therapy. And the TDCS, or transcranial direct current stimulation unit that we use, the very small thing, which is actually on a wire, which is behind the, the patient's back and being controlled by another researcher. So you can give one of two kinds of stimulation, or you can give sham stimulation, so that the patient doesn't know whether or not they feel the same kind of ramp up as the current is turned on in the sham stimulation as they do in either of the other um, current um, modes. And I, as the person doing the melodic intonation therapy with them, am unaware of what they're getting. So that is a double-blind study. Mm -hmm. It's not double-blind with the music part of it, but yeah. um, we do, uh, just to answer your question from earlier, our study is looking at a specific um, control intervention that we designed to take the music part away. Everything else is the same. So we have melodic intonation therapy and speech repetition therapy. So the stimuli are exactly the same. The way it's administered is the same, except for the, the singing and the hand tapping, um, which engage that same yeah. So part even of the the, brain. another part to um, further talk about studying, researching music, I think one of the challenges is that when we talk about the dynamics, you know, interpersonal dynamics of music therapy, that's hard to, to study because it's real-time interactive music making. But a lot of the research that's been done has been on the components of music, okay. of, of rhythm and sound and arousal mechanisms. And those can be studied on a neuroscience basis mm -hmm. because they can be isolated. But then you have to realize that music is so broad, you know, so we have the sound, we have vibration that can have an impact on function. But once it gets into song, song not song meaning music, composed music, once it gets into an organized musical sound, then we get into a different hierarchy of processing that becomes more difficult to study, mm -hmm. I think. So when you do rhythmic entrainment for someone, say, with Parkinson's, could that person could that person just be using a click track? Yeah. So when the when the first studies were done, it was by a rhythmic sort of metronomic type click track, and that works fine. Um, what we did find out though is that if the person can, if there's a melody that they can hold on to, so if that melody has a rhythmic pattern to it, they can self entrain. Yeah. Because that part of the brain of imaging, imagining that sound could also drive the same motor mechanisms. That's interesting because in, in Indian classical music, uh, the, the, the drummers, tabla the, the tabla players, yeah, you know, they do they, that. Yep. Uh, they have, you know, they ha they can go and do their own solo performances for an hour or so, but usually there's a very simple repeating uh, pattern that keeps it together. A, a melody yeah. played by yeah. another instrument, and, it, and that instrument is simply accompanying. You know, the melody is just there to kind of. Mm -hmm keep the ear where it's supposed to be, you know, focused on them. And, and it's the, it's the, the rhythm that, that takes you someplace. Yeah. One of the interesting things I think about music, at least when we, you know, study it in patients who've lost cognitive function, is that the components of music are processed at subcortical levels. So when you look at a piece of art, or when you listen to language, that's all higher cortical processing. Yeah. Not all? Not all. No, there's okay. supportive contributions as well to some aspects. Yeah, yeah. But I, it, well, maybe then maybe yeah. I'm wrong. But that this component of our motor system and physiological system that can be driven purely by patterns of sound. Mm -hmm. 
So even if somebody has severe cortical damage, there's still ways of entraining them to sound that is impossible through verbal interaction. And so many times we'll work with people with severe brain injury to sort of jumpstart areas of the brain that still may be available to them and bring it into a higher level of action. But tell me about what you were... Well, I mean, it, it's... Um I was just saying that there are subcortical contributions to pretty oh, much now yeah, to yeah. many, yeah. many high-level cognitive functions. But yeah. I think also one thing to um, keep in mind, um, when, so when you were talking earlier, you said that um, music kind of engages the whole brain. And in some ways, it's certainly true because, you know, um, if you're a musician listening to music, you're going to activate your motor cortex to some extent, right, because you're thinking about in actually playing that uh, piece. And, of course, there's huge swaths of auditory cortex that are active. And then music elicits all sorts of emotions, and so the emotional centers are active. And there may be some kind of, you know, thoughts that get generated by music, like, you know, thinking about your loved ones, and so your social system may be active, and so on. Um, but I think it's really important to also keep in mind, um, so I'm coming back to this question of specificity, there are some parts of our brain that appear to be really, really specifically responding to music. Okay, so there are some parts of the auditory cortex that respond very, very robustly when we process music and all kinds of music, including familiar and familiar, um, different cultural, music from different cultures. But these same regions don't respond at all when we hear speech, when we hear animal noises, when we hear all sorts of mechanical noises. So it's a a really, really, really specific response. And there's nearby regions, of course, that respond to um, uh, speech, speech sounds. And those regions are, this is before we get into the language domain. These just respond to the acoustics of speech. They respond just as much to foreign speech as they do to um, familiar speech. Um, anyway, and, but, so um, these are the kinds of regions that, when damaged, will lead to problems which are specific to music. So you mentioned Isabel Peretz is right. one of the um, kind of leaders in that field uh, who has documented very interesting cases of patients who appear to have um, uh, really quite selective deficits with some aspects of music following stroke. Now, you know, you may have damage to some aspects of your motor cortex or emotional system and may lose some ability to either enjoy some aspects of music or process some aspects of music, but um, it's really these parts of the auditory cortex that are music selective that um, uh, seem to be have this one, one-to-one relationship with musical um, abilities and uh, ability to perceive music. That said, I think the place where music very usefully interacts with the rest of the brain is through this very extensive bilateral system, which people call many, many names in the literature, which is never helpful. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's, it, the, the network is known as um, task positive network because it gets engaged in many, many tasks, or the cognitive control network, or the executive system network, or the attention network. The, the bottom line is it's a system that gets engaged in a broad, broad range of goal-directed behaviors. It seems to care about prediction in general, so we predict the world all the time. We try to predict you know, what happens, what you're going to say next, or how you're going to move next, or if I'm listening to a piece of music, you know, what kind of structure might um, come, up, uh, come next, and so on and so forth. And that system has been linked to things like fluid intelligence, flexible behaviors, kind of another real hallmark of um, our species. Monkeys have like an equivalent system, it's just not quite as good. Some people argue it's qualitatively different in some ways, but the evidence for that is a little scant. But anyway, so so we have this huge, huge system that allows us to engage in all sorts of goal-directed behaviors and planning. And that's a system that gets engaged very robustly by music and rhythmic stimuli, and it seems like that's where it may actually 
intersect with things like some aspects of language or some aspects of you know motor function or some mm -hmm. aspects of um, kind of general emotion attention um, components. But there's there's another kind mm -hmm. of uh, sort of crossover, a kind of a gray area between speech and language. And, and Andrea, um, working with uh, people with aphasia, I mean, it's, it's always struck me that people who grow up speaking tonal languages, like Mandarin, that, that line, that, that differentiation that we make between speech and song is less clear when your language when, when every word in your language can have three different meanings, depending on whether it's pitched high, medium, or low. Mm. So it's not quite at the level of language, though, still. Um, it's at the level of speech perception. So there's indeed very interesting work suggesting, for example, that tone deafness is a lot less common in Mandarin speakers, for example. Um, and uh, again, there is work suggesting that in the auditory cortex, there is some shared bit that responds to pitch, uh, across domains. So there it doesn't matter if it comes from a you know, train horn or music or speech, but it's this, it's this very, very sensitive to pitch modulation region, and that's potentially where some of these interactions may happen along with potentially brainstem areas which also have been implicated. But that's again kind of before you get into the realm of um, mapping thoughts onto linguistic forms, which is kind of what the kind of high-level language is, right? It's once you're passed with the acoustic signal. And at that level, it seems like there is really, really very clear separation between the regions that support language and the regions that support music, modulo this very, very domain-general system, the frontoparietal system I mentioned, where every kind of engaging task will overlap. Um, but in terms of um, the processing mechanisms we use for language and music, those appear to be quite distinct. And there's, there's been a lot of confusion in the literature because um, many people have argued that there is something like an abstract hierarchical processor of structure in language and music, and some people have also added math into the same bag. Um, but the evidence for those kinds of claims all came from studies where um, the paradigms would be something like you're listening to a piece of music and then you have um, something that doesn't fit with the preceding context, right? Like uh, violating. Like, oh, no. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so similarly in language, you would get a sentence and then something will disagree in gender or number or whatever language you're using. There'll be basically a grammatical error, yeah. right? And as you can imagine, when you're processing a familiar stimulus and you get something that doesn't fit with the context, a lot of things happen in your brain. You're like, whoa, you know, this is an error. Something is wrong. I'm going to try to fix it. Did they mean this, right? And so um, some of the work that we've done um, has shown that this kind of overlap, it does happen, but it doesn't happen in some abstract hierarchical processor. It happens in this very domain general system that just reacts to basically unexpected events in the world, and it will respond just as much to, you know, a sequence of blue circles and then a red circle as it would to a violation of hierarchical structure in music or a grammatical structure in language. Yeah, I just want to follow mm -hmm, uh, Evelina mm -hmm. that uh, language, it's to my understanding, is kind of intellectual endeavor. While in music, we don't invest intellectual efforts to perceive music. This is why it's available to people with Alzheimer, to autistic children, to people with tremendous cognitive problems. We are dealing with very special way of communication. And these special ways, they, ex they explain the power of music therapy, mm -hmm. basically. Because as Conchetta wrote, uh, that uh, music is dealing with different pathways to accessing our memories, 
uh, whatever it's like, uh, let's say that music gives something like a temporary winter, winter of sanity to people with Alzheimer, when they suddenly recognize their relatives they, they could not recognize for months already, or they suddenly have these flashes from their memory, or they suddenly start citing the words of the songs they knew in their youth. Uh, we are dealing with very special phenomenon, and, uh, which is very accessible. Uh, yes, it's auditory information, of course, and it goes through all the process in relays. And we know there is some difference, like uh, in in sense of which hemisphere, uh, brain hemisphere, more responsible for speech and more for music. There's a lot of shared mechanisms, but altogether, in music, we are dealing with very simple way of encoding complex information and decoding complex information. And this simplicity explains this uh, kind of generosity uh, of communication through music. You don't need to have special training to get very complex messages of music. You don't this need is my point. Training to get messages from language either, and in fact, people with severe mental disability, like some individuals with Down syndrome, who would you know score very poorly on a lot of IQ tasks, they nevertheless can understand language and produce language. I agree, and, but they need to yeah. learn words. Of course, you need to learn words. Dogs can learn. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, you need to learn words to communicate. Well, but it doesn't. You know, you know it's yeah. interesting. Some of our, our patients who had severe aphasia, um, we forget how much our facial expression informs communication. Exactly. Um, and so you'll see people yeah, who yeah, start yeah. mimicking yeah. the, you know, the lip movements of somebody if they're trying to understand what's being said. So I think, as a as a as a language species, uh, we tend to really depend on verbal communication to understand each other, but when we lose the ability to express ourselves verbally. We get creative. We get creative, and there's a lot of nuance that we mm -hmm. use, um, both through movement, through facial expression, even through you know, visual exchanges and feelings and gut responses that are part of communication and the way of sharing. And I think music informs some of that. I think that's why people who have severe brain damage um, can still appreciate and respond emotionally because some of those contextual elements can be accessed in lower parts of the brain. And you know, the other thing, sorry, the other thing that's interesting is when somebody, you were talking about the executive functioning and being able to plan ahead, but um, some of the work that Charles Lim is doing now with improvisation talks about when somebody's in this super creative process the frontal part of their brain isn't as active. They're not self-monitoring anymore. And I think what happens in a lot of our music therapy sessions where we have improvisational uh, music making, people who can't plan because they've had a, a trauma you know, that affects the frontal cortex or can't think through steps of doing things, in the moment of play and spontaneous interaction, they are able to access function because this part of the brain isn't needed anymore. Yeah. They're working on some other aspects. So there's so yeah, much, yeah, yeah. There so much going. Opposing systems. Exactly, yes, yeah. The executive mm -hmm. system has kind of its you know, arch enemy, which is this system which people kind of say is aimed at um, kind of introspecting and recalling things and um, uh, thinking about others' minds. And it's kind of known as the default mode. Right. Um, some people link it to social functions, so they would talk about the system as a social function, because a lot of what we do when we 
are not actively pursuing a task is think about other people because we're a very social species. And uh, anyway, so how those two systems trade off in complex cognition is a very interesting um, question. And, and the interplay between the two systems has been implicated in a lot of psychiatric disorders, right. actually, the various yep. bis- disbalances. And, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting mm-hmm. to think of you know, complex music mm-hmm. making where that prefrontal area is kind of Turned you know, off. needs to yeah. step yeah. out of the yeah. way. That's right, to make it... There's, yeah. there's mm-hmm. um, a musical technique called hocketing, which is... Mm-hmm. Um, you hear it in some of the music of Duke Ellington, you hear it in Indonesian gamelan music, you hear it in the music of Steve Reich, where... Uh, nobody plays the whole melody, you know. Uh, you play the first note, I play the second, you play the third, then you play the fourth, I play the fifth, you play the sixth. And I've, I've, you know, I've asked many musicians who employ this technique what it's like to do it, and universally the answer is you, you just stop. You, you stop think. thinking and you just, think. and after a while you don't remember who's yeah. doing what. It's just, you know, it Very becomes its own sort of closed system. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it takes takes training. You know, you have to, you have to internalize the, 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 the individual parts, mm-hmm. but the, the idea is to get to that point where the front of the brain shuts down and you just mm-hmm. go on instinct. I think it's very important uh, to concentrate on your think, thought that with language, we are dealing with high processing, basically. Yeah, there are some other layers, but still it's high processing. What about music? Well, it, there's higher processing in music. I mean, musicians do it all the time. Where we listen, we we un, we process what the sound is, what the key is, what what instruments are playing, um, what the harmonic structure is. So that's very high. And in fact, the more exposed we are to music, the more we're able to appreciate yeah. complex music. Mm-hmm. Whereas a novice musician may find some abstract music very disconcerting. Whereas an expert musician might see the excitement in you know, Stockhausen or, or something. Yeah, but I don't think that uh, the expertise on so and so important. Because people, on what level? Yeah, because people basically don't need to well, It's l- like language. Level. I mean, yeah. we could use five or six words to pretty much get around. It's mm-hmm. not true. Yeah. I mean, no, no, but I'm saying, <laughs> I, I'm very, you know, like saying that there's some universals. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's yeah. certain basic things sure. that we get out of music and we get out of language that we could survive yeah, yeah, that's with. Right, that's right, yeah. But to really be creative and spontaneous and be able to engage at a higher level, we need all those other elements available to us. But I'm I'm rooting for something different. Uh, You see, uh, music therapy can help premiers. It can help autistic children. And sometimes autistic children can be kind of uh, very much on the limits of the spectrum, like non-linguistic kids. It can help people with various uh, cognitive problems, like with Parkinson's, when it's already cognitive problems, and of course in Alzheimer. So there is some channel in music that kind of not necessarily reaches the highest levels, but uses some precognitive mechanisms to deliver important information, like going to the memories, and going to motor behavior, uh, going to the uh, feeling of well-being. And, and I think this is a very important theme uh, in, in the discussion about music therapy, huh. these precognitive mechanisms. Well, you were mentioning okay. the limbic system as yeah. well. I mean, there's certainly a lot sure. of subcortical I, I think stuff. one of the things mm-hmm. are, is, again, the hierarchy of music development mm-hmm. and how it gets paired or how yeah. it's parallel 
to other aspects of function. So something like the structure of, of language is also parallel to the structure of music. So when somebody loses the ability to verbally communicate, the structure of that sound can inform some of the linguistic elements. You know, I mean, there's, there's so many, same thing like the motor system has parallel pathways to our processing of rhythm. So the motor system works on an on-off signaling mm -hmm. system, right? And so those, paired path, those shared pathways are very robust and shared by music as well as other kinds of function. But Different yeah. from other kinds of arts because um, yeah, these are fundamental structures. But I think music arose or was developed out of the fundamental structures that we as an animal species already had available to us. So again, movement as representative of activity and feeling and sound as relative to feeling and emotion. So I think music came out of our internal system. Sure. So food, so did food for thought. <laughs> yes. Food for thought. Um, let's talk about neonates. You brought, you brought yeah. Up. So preverbal, you can't be any more preverbal than that. Yeah. Um, neonates, well, fetuses uh, can distinguish rhythm in about 16 weeks long before they can distinguish mom's yeah, yeah, yeah. voice or anything like that. Um, we have a, a study uh, that was done uh, in 11 different uh, NICUs mm -hmm. um, that looked at entrainment, which was something that you brought up before, um, in stabilizing and reducing uh, O2 saturation, um, heart rate and, and respiratory rate. And so these are, they, they couldn't be any more preverbal. There's no such thing as music psychotherapy with, right. a, with a neonate, at least not verbally, right? Um, but through, through entrainment, not, not mechanical entrainment, um, we were able to uh, stabilize and actually lower uh, heart rate and respiratory rate and stabilize and uh, um, oxygen saturation. in utero, saturation. you're saying? No, these but are neonates. These, these are okay. uh, 32 weeks, maybe. Do we know if that kind of um, an approach would work with animals, non-human animals, at least prime, other primates? I have never worked with animal babies, no. <laughs> I mean, that would be useful to know. There aren't too know, many in the hospital. Right? Sorry? I mean, that would be useful to know. It still wouldn't quite tell us about um, uh, species specificity because the in utero experiences might have differential exposures to music, um, although you can control this with reared monkeys, of course. But, uh, I mean, it's just it would be useful to understand whether it's a very kind of low-level physiological thing that would work on any you know, mammal or at least primate right. or you know, try to understand well, where it's Yeah, this is what we were um, talking about, periodicity yeah. in yeah, animals yeah, yeah. before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I have a kind of a, a hypothesis mm -hmm. about these differences between language and music that most likely uh, they both uh, came from the same root, which is the vocal production. So it was first signaling system uh, in animals. It's expression of uh, well-being, expression of danger. It's the vocal production. So uh, gradually it was development into two, like uh, bifurcation. So one branch became language with precision of communication. And here we come with uh, Ritz idea of mirror neurons, that mirror neurons were involved in creation of language. 
Okay. So I mean, I'm just a little skeptical of the mirror neurons. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, anyway, so anyway, somehow we came to those cognitive constants. On the other, uh, on the other side, we get emotional component of first signaling system going into music. When it was discovered that sounds have certain relationships, the hierarchy of those relationships that allows us eventually to develop melodic thinking. So we have rhythmic things which are uh, working for movement, for language, and for music, but we have something very special that works only for music. It's the relationship between musical sounds, tonal relationships, that allows to create melodies. And those relationships are very primitive. So it does not matter what we listen, a simple melody or a complex uh, piece played by a symphony, it's the same very simple uh, principle of tonal relationships that could be explained as uh, interplay between dissonant sounds and consonant sounds. So we, we have difference in pitch, and there are not a lot of them. We have very few elements in music. The parsimony of musical matter is fantastic. Just basic seven elements, the atonic scale, plus five chromatic scales, and they repeat it again and again cyclically. But the relationship, this is what's interesting, they, they work like phenomenal fields of gravity. We have very stable tone, and we have all other tones, the different speech, that have different level of attraction to this tone. And this is how we travel in tonal space. And we don't need to be trained to get it. So there is no words in music. We don't need to learn that this is Mao, or Kot, or Sha, or Ked. We just know, okay, this is something that's going on, and we tune to that, and they're just relationship between different musical sounds. And it happens, I, I guess, on a very simple level. We don't need to be trained to understand consonances or dissonances because we can see on different responses, brain responses in newborn for consonances and consonances. And we can have studies, and we already had studies with two months old. You play for them consonances, dissonances, and they recognize it. But at that point, they've had two months plus, you know, a few months in utero experiences with Western tonal music, right? And that's why recent work on um, uh, the Chimani in Bolivia, um, this is led by uh, Josh McDermott at MIT, mm -hmm. um, is suggesting that the at least the valence aspect of consonants and dissonance does not seem to be culturally universal. And even though, um, you know, people living right nearby in Bolivia who have had exposure to tonal music do have a preference, albeit it's still not quite as strong as it is in you know, MIT undergrads or whatever his control group is in the US. The Chimani, who have very different kind of music, they just don't, they can tell the difference and they can do control tasks, like they will judge you know, crying as sad and laughing as happy, but they don't have the preference for consonant sounding as kind of happy and pleasant and the dissonant sounding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just yeah. interesting. Uh, recently, we had a pilot study with adults uh, at Lobachevsky. And we, uh, so we were looking into variability of heartbeat, uh, uh, heart rhythms, and we played different music. So one of the pieces which was loved everybody was um, second movement from Mozart Concerto, uh, I think 23rd. And everybody was just happy to listen to that. As a contrast, I took uh, 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 Piro Lodaire by Schoenberg, which is quite dissonant. Could you imagine one of the 
uh, participants was particularly attached to this space. And I was thinking how it happened. Uh, it's possible that those idioms from atonal music, they kind of went into popular culture through films like suspension, something good needs to happen, and people like it. So it's not necessarily violence. It's just difference because there's a perception of dissonances and consonances. It's body responses, perceived tension. And there were studies starting from 80s that demonstrated that this perceived tonal tension actually translates into physical tension. This is why I like so much your thoughts about enrollment of motor system, because I believe that when we listen to music, it's not just rhythm that involves uh, let's say, um, uh, our, our, uh, like, like basal ganglia. Uh, but it's built, built into a system of muscle responses, fleeting responses to music. And this is how people memorize melody, perhaps. It's not that they remember just auditory information. Possible. It's just a hypothesis. It's possible that it's our body remembers the fleeting muscle responses to melodic information, and this is why music is so available, because motor responses they are the simplest ones. The feeling of tension is primeval. If something not right, we are tense. Is everything is okay? We are relaxed, and this is what music exploits. Well, but it's, again, you know, yes, so, so like, I mean, it is, uh, you are it's, saying it's just a hypothesis, but if you look at individuals, for example, who were either born paralyzed or are lacking mm -hmm. limbs, they can certainly experience music, you know, in arguably as richly. So it's not the case that the motor system is a core part of mm -hmm. experiencing or enjoying. I mean, it's just something to keep in mind. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about um, the studies that Sandra Treehop had done about um, language development in newborns mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how their ability to process a range really close mm -hmm. sounds at birth are all similar no matter which part of the world they come from yeah. and then as they get exposed to their mother tongue yeah. through you know work just being in the environment yeah. with other adults that window of change happens pretty rapidly so um, they stop perceiving these nuances of microtones mm -hmm. between pitch and actually start going to whatever's the most constant in their native tongue. Also selective, yeah, you yeah. basically tune in to so the relevant. So I think all children when they're born have a broad range of perception, as long as there's no damage you know, to the auditory mm -hmm. cortex. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cultural. Mm -hmm. Um, how this, uh, these other nuances, even the visceral response, I'm thinking we were just talking about Joe Ledoux's work in, in, in memory and trauma, they, um, a newborn who doesn't have the ability to understand the word around them is only developing visceral memory from birth, right? Because they can't put things into contextual meaning because it's all experience. And so a lot of trauma that becomes really deep-seated are these visceral memories that become part of our makeup that we don't know about until somebody helps us process where they're coming from. Um, so a lot of our early, early development is on the visceral system, for sure, because we don't have the yeah. cognitive constructs to make sense of it yet. You know, it's interesting uh, hearing you talk about like how the brain is a very efficient mechanism and it will pare down uh, those pathways that it doesn't need anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Jamshed Barucha, uh, who for many years was at Tufts and, and then at the New School, um, grew up playing both Western and Indian yeah. classical music and did an interesting presentation at a World Science Festival panel that we did some years ago where he just kind of drew all of these like connecting lines between, you know, it was just like a schematic diagram of neurons and how, you know, if he had grown up in one set or another, all of these lines would have disappeared and you would have these 12. Mm -hmm. But growing up in two different uh, traditions simultaneously, he had all these neural connections. And for him, the idea of the kind of the flatted sixth and seventh of certain raga scales was as natural as the perfect fifth and you know the, the major third, which by the way, if you hold a major third for a long time, it is crushingly dissonant. Our major third is, the Western major third is off by a, a tiny fraction that when held over a long period of time becomes increasingly clear to the... <laughs> whereas if you're, if you're, you know, because we, our, our Western sense of harmony is a human creation. Debauchered, yeah. 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 Debauchered this beautiful overtone series-based right. scale. The third is, it yeah. should be a ratio of four to three, but our third is the twelfth root of two. Because we cannot. An irrational, non-repeating Well, it, makes, it makes me think when, you know, when I was talking to people um, at Yamaha when they were de developing the digital keyboards, um, one of their challenges was to make the acoustic experience rich enough because when, when the well-tempered clavier was developed, you know, Beethoven was composing for the string instruments. Bach. Mm -hmm. or Bach, sorry. Yeah. But, but composers at that time. Um, and I'm thinking about Beethoven only because certain um, pieces that were done with violin and piano were done in certain keys because of the acoustic response mm -hmm. right. of like an E flat in the key of E flat with the violin and the piano, as opposed to if you were playing by harpsichord, you know, or something else, you know, where it wouldn't have been as close. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, it's fantastic case of brain plasticity. What happened yeah. during the uh, during 16th century? Uh, the temperate scale was actually discovered mathematically in China for completely different reasons. Uh, and then Europeans knew about that at the end of 16th century. And they did not want to apply it hmm. purely till the beginning of 20th century. They tried to dance around that. So if you look on historical tuning, they're all trying somehow to salvage the naturally sounded right. scale. And well-tempered clavier it was one of the uh, variants of temperament. Bach liked that. Right. And the well-tempered clavier, you, you, you have tonalities with, uh, with you know, modest uh, key signature, which are closer to natural scale than tonalities with extended key signature, like 5-6. They really sound bad. Yeah. But most likely he used that. Well, but uh, even Bach, you know, mm -hmm. when he sat down to compose, he had to first decide, am I using Werkmeister 3 or Kernberger 2? <laughs> I mean, he had all well, of these the possible other, yeah, tunings yeah. available yeah, to right. him. Yeah. And, and you they know, all had different effects. And, and yeah. that was the point. There was yeah. a famous treatise yeah, called yeah. Die Affektenlehre, right. the, the Doctrine of Affects by Johann Matheson, probably in the, in, in the 18th yeah. century. Mm -hmm. that, and Pythagoras did this, uh, you know, mm -hmm. 2,000 years earlier, where he went through all of the keys and said, 
you know, the emotional impact. This is the emotion, this is the, uh, this is the affect of E-flat, which is why Mozart saved E-flat for certain things and G minor for certain other things, C major, you know, for the coronation mass, you know, the, because they felt those differences. There, and there was a whole kind of scientific, quote unquote, you know, as scientific as they were in the, in the 18th century, trying to figure out what each scale did to us, did to sure. us emotionally. So, so our, the way we perceive dissonance is actually evolving. Because, Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Because E7 sharp 9 is not an ending chord until you listen to Jimi Hendrix, right? That's right. And it's, it's evolving not just as we go along, you know, as, as a culture, but it's, mm -hmm. it evolves in each of us individually because, you know, I, if I, as a kid, I would have heard Mahler and just thought, what's, what's, that, what's that noise? Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> you have to grow into it. You know, you mm -hmm. have to evolve your, your own sense of hearing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I mean, this kind of brings us right back to where we started, because if it doesn't mean something to you, you can't use and, it. And that's why there's no, in, in music therapy, why it's a, such a process, mm -hmm. because we don't know what that person's life experience is with music, and we don't know how we can use that music to really reach the elements or to achieve the goals that we want to achieve or they want to achieve. We want to help them. So it is this detective work you know, to find out who they were, what was their life experience, how does their body respond to sound, how do they mentally respond to sound, what are the associations and feelings they have to sound. So all of that comes into play. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a being a good doctor, too. I mean, sure. somebody comes in with all these symptoms. You have a sort of a checklist of things it's not, you know, and then you try to figure out and hone in where it's coming from. You can, you can see therapy as sort of uh, pulling on a thread and seeing what comes along with yeah. it. Do you, you remember in the 1980s, you know, at the height of the New Age music movement, there were all these records coming out that made claims of being, quote unquote, healing music. Yes. Yeah. Personally, I found this I stuff to be like itching power. I know, yes, it just yes. Like, it was like, crazy. Well, look, what the is this? Is what, yes. what, does it, what does it heal? I mean, this is, well, as a exactly. music therapist, one of my pet peeves is the, this idea of the healing power of music. Well. As far as I know, uh, there's no empirical evidence that music heals anything at all. But it can certainly be used in a healing process in therapy. So, did I stir something up here? Yes. We still did not, did not mention very important system, the biological reward system, that music is able to activate. It was found that Extremely pleasurable music activates nucleus accumbens, which is mm. a star of our biological reward system. So maybe this one of the explanation to uh, diminishing sense of pain that kind of distracted. Uh, and uh, I don't know if it's explanation for people who have better recovery from stroke when they listen to music as compared to listening to books or white notes. Um, any, anybody wants to talk about the pleasure in music? Well, they did find an effect. You're talking about the Finnish study? That, the, the it was studied by Zator and Blood in 2001. This was oh, the they, Childs one. Yeah. There's also a one that, yeah. that was with Finland passive listening. Did, uh, passive music. listening to mm -hmm. music. And, and the people who listened to music right after stroke did better. So again, than, it's a different system. I mean, that's... Um, the reward system is a lot of different than the cerebellar and basal ganglia motor system. So there's 
sound affects all these different systems in our body, and each one of them has a different effect with music. Yeah, but it, it's actually strange. Why? What, what is it in this language? It, it's, you know, the biological reward system is also activated by food, sex, drugs, money, something very tangible. What is it about music that it suddenly enters the same but, company? You know, in the blood and blood and Robert Satori study, um, each, they studied 15 musicians, I think it was 15 professional musicians, and each one had to come in with their piece of music. They gave them the chills at a very specific measure in the piece of the music so they could do the imaging, right? But what they used as a control was each other's piece of music. And so, you know, the, the, the person who responded to the Argentinian tango music didn't respond to the Coltrane piece <laughs> right. the same way. So again, it shows us that our emotional responses to music are really life, based on life experience. Not so much the, the rewards the system is developed based on our personal experience with the music. Or maybe it drives the, that emotional system first, and that's why we, we gravitate toward it. Aesthetic emotion, it's such a difficult thing to parse. So it's presence of beauty. Uh, it's a cultural construct that you grew up, your personal memories, and your psychological makeup. It, it's all just yeah. confounded. So that's not universal. That's, that's subjective. That's very yeah. yeah. Very individual. Very yeah. individual. But you know, this also goes back to something else that you were talking about before, which is the, the kind of the predictive. I mean, what music does is it plays with, which is why we like repetition in music. We, the brain is very happy to be able to predict what comes up. Yep. You know, I, I hear a one, four, five chord progression. I'm, I'm betting it's going back to the one, and when it does, it's like the brain goes, ah, I knew it. <laughs> but, but the brain also likes the, the surprise, yes. and it Intera likes, yeah. which is why when, you, when people talk about the money note in a song, it's like usually when you hit the note that you expect to hear in the melody, but the harmony underneath it has it modulated, yep. and, and suddenly it's like, wow, what was that? You know, it's, so it's not like the cell phone in the, interrupting the symphony, but it is, it's, it's, it's a very fine balance between being able to predict and the element of surprise. That's absolutely right. I, I just want to also mention that there is um, some beautiful work in, um, uh, in the developmental literature suggesting that um, infants at various, various points in age have some optimal amount of information that they like. So if the signal is, and you can imagine doing something very, very simple like showing them sequences of you know, familiar objects, and they get really bored if they get shown the same thing over and over and again, and they also get bored if they're shown completely unpredictable sequences. Mm -hmm. But there is some optimal amount of kind of predictability and surprise then they'll pay attention for longer and longer. And then, of course, that also changes. The amount of information we can handle changes as we um, uh, develop. But it's certainly the case that there may be something really fundamental about repetition in music, and that's why maybe um, at a very young age, we get so interested. I mean, you, you know, those of you who have kids know that kids like repetition, right? They'll have the same book read over to them like so many times in a row. And it's like there's clearly not much new information, going, but they like the fact that you know they know what's going to happen in the story and they can kind of you know participate in this. And so there, now the question of why we came up with a system like music that uses that repetition. I mean, that's a very interesting question that goes back to the evolutionary question. But mm -hmm. for the evolution, I just want to mention one thing. So, so, so indeed, there is a hypothesis that music and language somehow coevolve 
solved through vocal communication, but there's also a strong alternative, which is actually now perhaps the dominant hypothesis for the language evolution, which has nothing to do with vocal communication, but instead has to do with gesture. And, and the, the, a lot of the observations basically come from the fact that in primates, um, vocal signals are very, very constrained and very context dependent, so they'll you know, have a very particular signal for this kind of predator, that kind of a predator. And, um, a system like gesture um, is much more tied to the kind of social cognitive mechanisms that are, you know, evolving over the course of, um, you know, the last few million years, where, um, you know, something like trying to get someone's attention by, you know, manipulating an object and trying to see if you get, like, shared um, eye contact on something that I'm trying to draw your attention to or something like that. So um, a few... Theorists have now argued that actually language may have come about through the motor system, through gestural and potentially, yeah, you know, um, yeah. body. But I think this is basically Rizalaris and the, um, uh, your idea? Mm. Uh, his group ideas that it's gesture, it's development of gesture. Uh, well, it's, it's, uh, gesture. Yeah. a lot of people have made those arguments. Yeah. If you read, like, if you actually read the way that Rizalati talks about it, it's very, very vague and underspecified. It's true. It's very hand wavy. I mean, so so if that's satisfying, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the beginning. This is the beginning. Yeah, like in everything else, it's a beginning. Mm. Yeah. I but, don't know. I'm not sure if you want to begin with vague things yeah. always, but anyway, it's it's, yeah. it's debatable. But I do believe that music yeah. is ba- it's basically yeah. uh, emotional component of vocal communication. Yeah. Well, Stephen Pinker, you know, famously just well, yep. considered it a, a kind of a an, an offshoot, Excellent. a byproduct, yeah. a beautiful yeah. one, but yes. just an accidental byproduct. Yes. 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 <laughs> Auditory cheesecake. And then you have someone like mind. Gary Livingston at Yale who, right. who who posits that the two grew up in yep. you know yep. on parallel yeah. tracks from a similar yeah. kind of yeah. urge to express oneself. Yeah. So. I would like to uh, hear a response to uh, a certain bias or uh, or assumptions that. I've heard here, and I think we generally we generally have uh, not only in this discussion. Um, first is uh, the assumption that uh, music is about sound, but there are a lot of other aspects to it. I mean, there's a social aspect. I mean, it's been and it's been mentioned a visual aspect, right? Which. Uh, uh, I think are, uh, you know, they're asonic elements, but I don't think they're less important than, than the sonic aspect. And the other one uh, is uh, the notion that uh, music therapy is beneficial. Well, you know, strong medicines sometimes have undesirable side effects. And I'd like to hear if there is something uh, like that. In other words, I, th- I think we need that something like that to fill out uh, a picture of, of what the boundaries of this phenomenon are. Well, I could definitely speak to the negative effects of music. So when, when people talk about all music um, can be therapeutically beneficial, some of the dangers, because of the things we spoke about, are the negative effects. 
of music. And people, I mean, people who have epileptic seizures, for example, can be prone to seizures if a rhythmic pattern is too strong or if the, the volume or the frequency of the sound is too much. If they've had emotional um, memories associated with certain types of music, playing that music for that person could be very traumatic. So similar to medicine, where you have trials and you see what works and doesn't work, you have to be really careful to not just say music is very therapeutic for everybody, because each person is going to have a different response to this. So I'll speak to that piece, and you guys could speak to the I'd, first I'd part. I'd like to say something about what your first question um, about, or your comment about other benefits of music. Um, one of the things that we use in our enhancement of melodic intonation therapy is the injection or interjection, I should say, of musical thinking. And so one of the ways that we empower the patient to take on the therapy themselves is by training them to create their own targets. So people with uh, severe non-fluent aphasia can't get started when they want to say something. They know what they want to say. It's in infuriatingly frustrating for them because they have exactly what they want to say in mind and no way to get it out. So the way that the therapy actually works is a therapist would hum first what the phrase is going to sound like and give the target phrase. And once they're trained to do this, they learn how to sing on the inside before they open their mouth because the mouth takes them down a motor path that they can't get off. They get stuck in this loop and they keep saying the same thing over and over and over what they don't mean to say. So if they think first and hear it inside and then do this inner rehearsal as a musician would if you're going to practice something um, on your own, um, then they begin to learn how to not only make their own target, but to begin to self-assess and troubleshoot as they go. And if you stretch these sounds out, um, and the beauty of the singing is the connected speech because uh, non-fluent aphasic can get out a burst and a burst and a burst, and maybe it's just the initial consonant, and they keep on repeating that like a stutterer. But if you breathe first and you make this breathing part of your inner target setting and your inner rehearsal, you breathe and then you put it out in one piece, they don't lose it in the middle. They're able to keep their whole thought together. They're able to keep that whole piece of whatever. And it doesn't really matter what the music part sounds like. It's about that thinking and that when they walk out the door, they're not stuck with a set of 20 phrases to practice. They've got their own thoughts, which they can then get out by using musical thinking and a musical process without the music really being the important part. So that's just one example. Sure. I'm sure to, you have a ton of those. To add to what uh, Connie said about the, the dangers of indiscriminate use of, of music in therapy, um, let's say I'm, I'm uh, uh, in radiation oncology in a waiting room, and uh, I, I really like Stairway to Heaven. I think that's a, a nice song. Or Knocking on Heaven's Door, something I really like to listen to. <laughs> right. Um, you get... Yeah. yeah. Um, another thing, uh, uh, neonates. It is it is very easy to overstimulate a neonate with pre-recorded music that's just left on. Even somebody post -co in a coma, too much arousal could be detrimental sure. in the early stages. You know, of a somebody who's in a coma, a, you know, vegetative state, they could still have a level of arousal, but too much sensory stimulation can actually be adverse. So really, being careful about what's 
Can I ask a quick so follow-up? So there are, real, there are real, real issues yeah. with the use of music. I'm just curious if there have been any attempts. So I'm actually very interested in, oh, sorry, in the social component. Yeah, yeah. because um, And it seems like in, even in the kind of therapy that you guys do, it's, it's like very, well, I don't want to say easy, but it's, it may be one of the easier things to try to pull apart and see you know, what's the presence of you sitting there playing a guitar versus you sitting there and talking versus hearing a recording of you, but maybe having a curtain, right, so that mm-hmm. they can't actually see the person. And just kind of try to pull apart and figure out which, which bit of it is. Because, you know... I would really enjoy, you know, having you and play guitar, like having you sit here and play guitar for me. That's lovely, right? I mean, who wouldn't like that? But mm. the question is, you know, what, what is it that's particularly helpful? Is it the social bit? Well, yeah, some interaction. Music therapy is that practice of music psychotherapy. It's about relationship with the patient. Mm-hmm. It's about the space that's created between two mm-hmm. people. And music can be um, the motor or the, the, uh, the context for that uh, for for forwarding that relationship. Well, you know, we, we did a study once, I don't want to take away from your questions, but we did a study once where we did try to control for the social mm-hmm. aspect. Sure. And so we were looking at people, homebound adults who had depression mm-hmm. and who were, had medically complex issues. And so we had the music therapist make, go and visit with them and, and make, engage them in active music making. Mm-hmm. But then we had a, a social worker, a recreation type person, who would be the social visit, would have that one-to-one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. contact with them, um, and play games, maybe chess or cards That's or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was interesting is that mm-hmm. the psychiatrist, that was the psychologist who was doing the testing, mm-hmm. was blinded to who was in mm-hmm. which treatment. Mm-hmm. And there was one group that just had the traditional psychotherapy yeah. treatment or medication treatment that they mm-hmm, had. Mm-hmm. So the person who just had the traditional treatment, actually their depression went up, increased, the person, both, um, both the social, <laughs> the social one and the music therapy situation, both had a decrease, mm-hmm. but the music therapy intervention was decreased by half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, that, so it was that's the music too. Nice. That's a, that's so so I think that goes to your social aspect yeah, of music. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, a communal aspect of a shared experience that is is more than just the person, but or it adds to the person. Yeah. So there's something therapeutic about people moving and being together, mm-hmm. but the music adds a, another level to that. Actually, what I was thinking of was a particular piece of music, uh, which is, I, I forget the title, but, you know, the John Cage, you know. Oh, the silence. The, the silence. Um, <laughs> it's that. Right. 433. 433. <laughs> the silent piece, 433? Yes. 433. Right? And... Uh, you know, the, you know. I think we, you know, that's a, a, a music without any kind of sound, which is prescribed, uh, and and certainly it has very big uh, uh, social aspects that no recording uh, can come even close to. Which brings yeah. us to the challenges of of music experience, because all those other nuances of the experience itself adds to the perception of, of music. There, there is a recording of the first performance of 433. <laughs> that's, that's true. It took place in a, an open-air shed yep, yep. upstate New yep, York. Yep. It is utterly beautiful. There's no, that, no quote-unquote yep. music, but yep. it was gently raining, and the birds, it's, it, you know, there are no yep. walls, so you hear the birds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a beautiful way to spend four minutes and 33 seconds. <laughs> the piano was never touched. The pianist turns the page at the end of the first movement, turns the page at the end of the second movement. 
and the rest is the music of the Life. world around. Yes. Um, oh, first of all, uh, this is fascinating, so thank you for this. Um, I wanted to ask, well, first, I wanted to just talk, uh, when you were talking about the evolution of music and language, um, I've often heard it theorized, like the, the baby's hearing the heartbeat for weeks at a time, and so the, the rhythm is just entrained. You know, I don't know how you would ever actually prove that. Also, um, evolution, like in the early days, like uh, the importance of timing and rhythm as far as like uh, hunting and surviving. But um, my question is, sorry, let me just get my breath. My question is, um, we're talking about with music therapy often, uh, I don't know what disease is, but when there's some sign of recognition to music, I'm just curious why there wouldn't be also maybe like a hint of recognition from like a relative's voice or like, I'm curious what is it that, yeah. why, why um, you've not found language to help? I, I think the comparison, one of the rationales um, for why music is, is more resilient than just simple voice is because of the other dynamic elements involved in music. Then um, the voice, although it has tone, is very um, linear or, or um, not as dimensional as music, whereas music has rhythm, harmony, uh, well, speechless too, um, the emotional aspect. A lot of um, the recognition, you would think that somebody's voice would have the same emotional response or arousal, um, but it, se it seems that the complexity of music is, reaches a lot more, re or, or recruits so many more networks in the brain than the actual sound of Although somebody's smells, voice. smells, some smells have also this very powerful right. ability but to bring dementia, us back. But, but with mm -hmm. dementia and some diseases like Parkinson's, the olfactory cortex, right. start, I mean, that yeah, sense yeah. of smell is one of the first signs that there's okay. a problem, yeah. 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 that that diminishes early on. Mm -hmm. so. Thank you, this has been fascinating. Uh, now, you know, you're talking primarily about the most complex organ, and progress in understanding it has been very, very slow. Uh, I've been watching some of it, but not all of it. Um, Nancy Kenweiser was at Rockefeller yesterday mm. and outlined some of the research, the recent research. Uh, we've got new tools, MRI, PET scanning, uh, transcranial stimulation. How do you see research in this area going forward. Oh, can I answer that? Um, I'll tell you. Um, last month, I was at NIH with 20, 20 neuroscientists, music therapists, state music therapists, and 12 neuroscientists at the invitation of Francis Collins um, because there's been great interest in how the brain works and understanding complex systems and with um, trying to understand is there a therapeutic is there a measurable therapeutic aspect to music? And can we study that in a very cons uh, conservative way? And so they, they've, made, uh, they've made a commitment to start funding music brain research. Um, the initial partnership is with the Kennedy Center and NIH, and there's actually a big conference on June 3rd um, where they present some of the present research. Um, but this is, Francis Collins says they're gonna dedicate effort to this because it really speaks to the complexity of our brain and how systems integrate 
on very fundamental levels as well as very complex levels. So it's not so much studying music for the aesthetic aspect of music, but actually studying it to really understand how complex systems operate. That's the best news out of Washington and Greece. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, I was interested if there were any big cases from uh, musicians or people who've had interactions with music that were driving the research forward. I had two uh, possible. Uh, there was a jazz guitarist named Pat Martino oh, who yeah, had yeah. amnesia, and then he, I believe he taught himself to play guitar by only listening to his own records. And then there was a, uh, Edwin Collins, who is a uh, uh, Scottish singer, who I, I saw him, he had a massive aneurysm, and I saw him perform after, and he had to walk with a cane to get to his place on the stage, and his uh, speech was very difficult to understand as he was introducing his songs until he started singing, and it was like the record. So, just yeah, that that that's really speaks to the resiliency of you know those overlapping mechanisms that remain despite injury. So with Pat Martino, he had my memory meeting him. He was at one of our conferences. Mm -hmm. um, he had a stroke, and actually had to play, learn to play. <laughs> the guitar again. But once he did, that mood and memory came back. And he was, another person was Ruth Brown, the, the R&B singer, who lost his speech totally after stroke and actually got her speech back by listening to her own recordings and singing along. Well, I, I don't know if they're uh, big cases, but uh, we have a stroke choir um, at the yeah, uh, Louis Armstrong Center for Music and Medicine. Uh, that uh, takes place every Monday afternoon at 5 o'clock. And uh, uh, it is uh, related to an IRB uh, study, which we're conducting. And we do have some stroke patients who are musicians who are, who are in that. And uh, I, what I can say, I, I don't have access to the data yet because the, the study isn't finished. But uh, there, there is a very uh, easily observable uh, change in, in uh, getting getting back some of the skills that they had, as as well as uh, as well as speech. Are they able to recover things that through music that maybe non musicians might not be able to recover? I have no idea. These kinds so, of comparisons are really hard to make yeah, because you'd want a group that's matched for IQ yeah, and all sorts right. of other socioeconomics. There's, there's some right. there's some interest difficult. right now. In fact, some of the scientists who presented um, a couple of weeks ago were talking about. Um, the type of enhanced networks that get developed with music. I'm thinking of Nina Krauss and some of her work mm -hmm. at Northwestern about, um, for example, a good example is a person, no matter how many music lessons you had when you were a child, when you're older, even if you haven't played the musical instrument, you can actually discern sound to noise better than a person who was a non-musician or had never had musical training. So the idea that you can process complex sound or separate meaningful sound in a noisy environment is enhanced through purely having music lessons as a child. We had a patient who was a percussionist who had a stroke, and he had a right side paralysis, hemiparesis. And the traditional rehab therapy is to really um, focus on the good side and, and really allow that side to sort of take over function. 
but because he was a percussionist, he already had bilateral representation of the motor system. So he already had another representation of his right hand to work on, even though he had lost that motor ability after the stroke. So what they started doing is having him do bilateral exercises where he actually gained the right side back. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Anne, and I also want to just thank you so much for being here. Um, I have a, a background in jazz so as a jazz musician, and I also just recently finished my master's in speech pathology at the BU. Ooh, nice. And we got to, I got to be a co-founder of the Aphasia Community Choir up there. I'm sorry, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm shaking. Um, this whole talk and everything I've learned in the past three years has me excited to, to tears, and I just am so happy to now you know, bring this back into my practice, and my question is very practical. Um, I'm living out in New Jersey now and you know, getting ready to go into practice, and even though we all embrace these benefits and, and we also want to be very careful about how we talk about the research and be very balanced, and there's a lot of um, clinics and places, uh, you know, even in this area, in this day and age, that are still surprised to hear, oh my gosh, a stroke patient could sing and they couldn't talk? And it's a very new concept. And I want to be able to talk about bringing my experience and my clinic practice into these facilities, whether it's a SNF or a private clinic. And I, I'm having a hard time starting the conversation when people kind of have this idea that, oh, isn't that nice? A music therapy in the speech clinic room, isn't that nice? It's a nice uh, quality yeah. of life thing, but is it really clinically, like some of the other questions have been asked, clinically valid? And how to get that conversation going and maintain it and keep it going? I would love to hear your discussion about that. Well, that challenge has been going on for a very long time. Yeah. I, I think the challenge, and, and we talk about this in the field of music therapy all the time, is that music is so much a part of our experience, everybody's experience, that we sort of devalue the therapeutic aspects of it. And so um, you think of music as an art form. You don't think of it as, as a treatment. You know. And I think that's... The, both the American Music Therapy Association and other organizations have been doing a lot of ag advocacy at the state level and at the federal <coughs> level to um, inform people about the therapeutic, you know, the real research. One of the, uh, my institute, uh, the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function was, was founded back, you know, 20 something years ago to really bridge the uh, field of emerging neuroscience at that time and clinical music therapy so both could inform each other and advance practice. I think doctors and, and people in the medical profession no longer just say that's really nice and, and sweet, because they understand that there's other mechanisms at work in recovery, and, it, and it's not just one treatment fits for all. Um, and because we're starting to understand the complexity of neurologic function, that we can start to appreciate what music does. And so I think people are more receptive. What's going to drive it, I think, is um, I won't say money, because that's not going to help, but, but somebody had made a comment, if you could, if you could make money off of this, um, there'd be a lot more people behind it. Um, and, you know, like the pharmaceuticals or something like that. So um, I think the other thing is that if, if consumers, if there was enough consumer experience that they demanded it, 
um, the, the Centers for Alternative Medicine at NIH were formed because consumers started asking for certain kind of alternative medicines. And the government was challenged with the, um, the need to, to research it. $9 billion out of pocket in right. 2000. And that's what was happening. So I think what if, as parents of kids with autism or people who've had strokes who are learning to recover speech, as they learn and hear about what music therapy can do, they're going to start asking for it. And the more people are informed, it's like we have to do this major PR marketing campaign and educate the general public. But there's good research now. There's good scientific research because we can understand and see these brain mech that we couldn't see. You know, Oliver, Dr. Sachs and I back in the 80-something, early 80s, actually met with a group of neuroscientists and said, can you help us study music in the brain? And they said, no, you can't study music. Look how complex it is. It's, you know, it's so many different things. But now we are. Now we're able to, you know, piece piece apart different elements of One it. One thing that, again, I, I don't have a sense of how big the field of music therapy is, but and I realize that there's a many different kinds of yeah. disorders, but one thing that I would find helpful is, um, as a basic scientist, and I'm sure patients would find that helpful as well, is to have like a unified website that would have links to all of the good research, because I mean, there's such a wealth of there's research, a couple, yeah. and it's often really hard to evaluate the quality, mm -hmm. so maybe like some kind of studies that at least have been maybe replicated once, or, or some kind of re There's actually yeah. some yeah. white papers, there's a couple yeah. of white papers on the American Music Therapy, okay. so musictherapy.org, uh -huh, uh -huh. and if you go to conditions, there's actually pieces on, on um, PTSD and mm -hmm. early childhood development It would be learning. nice to have it like all in one place, yeah. like climate change people now right. have like so really nice idea. websites with like a lot and, and to have it categorized exactly. by areas. So exactly. that's a good idea. Yeah. So yeah. some of the places where you can have people look um, are clinicaltrials.gov. Yes. So anything that's mm -hmm. ongoing now or has mm -hmm. been finished that they can then look up the research, um, that's a good place for people to look. And the other thing is um, one of the things that I find or we have found over the years is people are concerned. I'm not a singer, they'll say. I can't do that. I'm not mm -hmm. a singer. And the important thing to let people know is it's not about being a singer, it's about being a person who has this um, preserved area in their brain. If it's a stroke person or somebody that's had a traumatic brain injury, they've got a part of their brain that works. And there's a very nice, or a couple of very nice apps, I don't know if you know about these brain apps that you can show a 3D brain to people, you can turn it around and show them this is the part of your brain that's not working the way it used to, we're going to train this part over here, and so they feel like I have this healthy thing that I can work with now, you know, and you can assure people that this part of your brain is just fine, and that's the part we're going to use to help you get better. So I think to allay people's fears about the singing not, matter, not mattering at all, actually worked with several people who are tone deaf. And it's not so much, as I, as I said before, about the, it's more about the musical thinking than it is about the way it sounds when it comes out. It's really not that important how it sounds. It's about getting out your thought. Just a final question, if I may, regarding um, basically inversion, to what extent uh, we can turn our attention to doctors as musicians themselves and what distinctions you might notice between colleagues who approach the medical application of music from a training of musical, uh, either professionalism, musical theory, et cetera, and then how would you characterize that kind of training as a fusion of music and medicine or as a bridge between the two? And in particular, even though I realize the panel isn't approaching this from the perspective of the, the musical industry itself, 
if you can offer any reflections on doctors as practicing musicians or doctors entering musical performance. Okay. Uh, big question. Yeah. Uh, doctors as, as uh, using music and medicine in a clinical context, all the doctors that I work with see many patients every day. I don't see them being really enthusiastic about uh, providing therapy with music or, or any other or any other sort. Um, music and medicine is, is a uh, very interesting topic. It is a growing field as well. Um, I'm trying to think of how many doctors I work with are musicians. Actually, quite a few. But they, they haven't ever expressed a, uh, a need to participate in the, the music therapy sessions, but they, they have been very enthusiastic about the use of music therapy with their patients. One of, one of the things I think, and I don't know if this is also what you were asking, um, that the create a creative approach to problem solving may be something that is more apt to happen with a, a, a musically trained doctor than someone who is purely scientifically trained. And so I think in a lot of medical schools now, they're actually encouraging the physicians, in, as part of their medical school training, to do the creative arts in some way, yeah. to really get into those nonverbal type, also their own personal feelings in certain situations, so they could be more empathetic and open to the nuances of where the patient presents them, because nothing is ever really just clear, clear, black, or right. So I think that way of creative thinking that's part of the music training is something that they're trying, some medical schools around here are actually trying to imbue. I think Wild Cornell. The Icon School has it. And Icon has yeah. it, yeah, and Wild Cornell. And the jazz it. pianist Fred Hirsch uh, oh, yeah. put, out, uh, put out that record a couple of years ago about his experience of you know, almost dying and yeah. you know, the medical profession and, and you know, this, this kind of coming together yeah. of musical practice as part of the training of these doctors who were able to kind of help him. Right. You know, that's, that's the, the, the substance of, of what his album of, I guess, three years ago was yeah. about. There's a very vibrant community of um, medical professionals in Boston that um, the, the Orchestra. Symphony yeah. Orchestra, actually, which is all medical professionals, and every concert they do is actually benefiting some area of research that needs to be done. So they're trying to raise awareness in that way, and perhaps the, what you suggest will come next. I don't know, or maybe you know of something like that. Well, even even something yet. like uh, like listening, you know, being able to listen to a patient and the nuances of their their exp verbal expression is something that a musician is more apt to be able to do. So some doctors are actually encouraged to listen to music as a way of understanding the nuances of speech when the patient comes to them. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.